0: Um, hello. Hello. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to St Paul's Cathedral. My name is Elizabeth Foy. I'm the Head of Adult Learning here. Welcome to uh, friends of longstanding and people who haven't been here for a long time, and new friends. Um, I, it's my, been my joy and my privilege to put on the events here, and there's a particular pleasure um, today to introduce the canon, Dr. Edmund Newell, who is the um, Principal of Cumberland Lodge. A place of great beauty physically and intellectually in um, Windsor Park um, where he he directs a program inquiring into the most serious things about our age about politics and ethics and economics and theology with great lightness and great alarm and great depth and today he's going to talk about this I am going to tell you marvelous book about the sacramental sea um, which has great depth and understanding about about why some of us so many of us are drawn to the sea as a place of spiritual encounter and and runs through the history um, of that extraordinary human instinct to do that and it's a particular pleasure for me because ed uh, before doing that and then went to Christchurch, oxford and um uh, before that was the canon chancellor here 10 11 years ago and um An important person in my life, he appointed me, so that was marvellous for me. (laughs) And then we worked together for five years at St Paul's Institute doing ethics and economics. And that was a conversation that was very formative for me, a conversation of four or five years about about the things that matter most uh, to us as human beings and as a society. And I'm very grateful for that to Ed. So it's a lovely thing today to welcome him back to come and talk about the Sacramental Sea.
1: Thank you very much, Elizabeth. If there's time at the end, I might just tell you about the interview when uh, I wanted Elizabeth, but uh, that's when the cameras aren't rolling. Uh, It's wonderful to, to be back at St Paul's and it's really appropriate that I'm talking about this book here. And in fact, we all ought to just get up and walk right up to the top of the dome to the Golden Gallery, because that's where this book started. So what happened was in uh, 2007 when I was here um, I was asked to lead the Radio 4's Sunday worship, Easter sunrise service uh, for Easter Day and they wanted me to do a reflection on London from the top of St Paul. So I did my homework, I went out, I stood on the Golden Gallery and uh, soaked in the atmosphere, went home and Uh, wrote the first draft of my script, and then I showed it to my wife uh, to say, what do you think of this? And she said, you can't broadcast that, you'll make everyone depressed. (laughs) So So I I read through the script and thought, yes, she's absolutely right. Because basically what I was saying was, what a fantastic view of London you get from the top of uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. But actually, what does it for me spiritually isn't looking out over a city, it's standing on a cliff looking out to sea. And the redeeming feature for me was looking down on the Thames, seeing it weaving through the city. And that started me to think, you know, why, why did I instinctively uh, put that in this script? So uh, anyway, I, I adjusted the script, so I hope people weren't depressed on, on Easter Day. But then the next thing that triggered uh, triggered this book was actually Evensong here, and I was, I'd been thinking about the sea as a result of that experience upstairs, and then I was listening to the reading at Evensong, and we had um, an extract from the book of Revelation. Revelation 21.1 uh, came out, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And that sort of really resonated with me. I thought, this is about the new creation, where we're hopefully eventually going, and God recreates the cosmos. And there's no more sea. I thought, ah, you know, I love being by the sea. Uh, Why in the Bible um, is the sea portrayed negatively? So I had two questions that started to, to come bubble up, and also I think a paradox. So the two questions were, Why do so many people, like me, find it extremely spiritual to be by the sea? Why is there some sort of spiritual attraction? But at the same time, if you look in the Bible, there are many, many negative references to the sea. How do you square these two things together? So that was um, the starting point of the book. And I should say, the book took 11 years to write. I can't promise I was writing it every day, because if I did, it would have worked out at six words a day. But um, but in fact, spending 11 years reflecting, reading, and really engaging with it was was really helpful. If i belted the thing out uh, quickly, I really think it would have been uh, not such a good book. So, let's start just with the Bible, um, to try to contextualise it. Now, we could spend hours studying the sea in the Bible, so what I want to do is cut to the chase Uh, for for this purpose, and to say why fundamentally the sea is portrayed negatively. And it really starts off right at the very beginning of the Bible with the book of Genesis. So I'm just going to read uh, some of the opening of Genesis. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. While a wind from god swept over the face of the waters so what we're seeing right at the beginning of genesis is an image of the pre-created state earth a formless void, formless void and then the deep this primordial mass this primordial ocean that's existing there and then the creation account goes on like this and god said let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And so it was. God called the dome sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Okay, so now God is bringing order out of chaos and we see these waters are being separated. And then it goes on. And God said Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, I'm just gonna pass around a handout because so you can just visualize what's uh, going on. So maybe if Elizabeth does that side, I do this side. So if you look at the top diagram, um, this, one, this one here, this is a representation of the ancient cosmology that lies behind uh, the book of Genesis, when we see the creation. So this is how many of the ancients in the Middle East perceived how the cosmos was, was formed, or was, was structured. So you can see that we've got, the waters have been separated, we've got waters under the earth, and we've got um, waters above the firmament. So the firmament is this dome that was believed to be there. The sky was believed to be this dome which had windows or lattices. So the idea was that when it rained, when it snowed, when the hail came, these lattices were opened up and water would drop in. And what you can see is also, when it's been separated, there's this vast amount of water that spreads out to the side, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But the seas are the bits of water that you can see popping up between the earth, the seas and the rivers, that's how it's all perceived. Those bits of, um, those little bits here, jutting up, were perceived as, as the seas. And that's how the ancient thought world um, perceived the, the structure of the cosmos, or well, certainly the, the thought world out of which Genesis came. Now, when you look at the Bible, and suppose one of the most famous stories about the sea in the Bible is Noah's flood, one of the things to understand about that is that what we're seeing explained there is that God allows a return to chaos. So this is the created order, where the seas have been, waters have been separated. For the flood, God punishes humanity by allowing a temporary restoration Of the uh, pre-chaos the pre-creation state where chaos reigns so we get water coming back down from above and coming up from under underneath and that is again the thought world that existed in that time that's how the the flood was perceived to be and then God does the reverse he goes back and separates them again goes back to that created state so what we're seeing in Genesis is the idea of creation not necessarily creating out of nothing, but much more about God being in control of what exists. And for the ancient thought, well, the most powerful force they could perceive were the oceans and God can control the oceans. And that lies behind so much of the thinking about the sea in the Bible. And we get reprises of it. And perhaps the most important reprise that we get from a Christian point of view is the idea of Jesus relating to water. We could spend a lot of time talking about the Sea of Galilee. Not a sea, a lake. And interestingly, as far as we're aware, it was never referred to as a sea uh, in early times except in the Gospels. So there's something odd going on there. But we might pick that up later on. But his, his... uh, a passage from the Bible which really uh, says something powerful, and it's from uh, Matthew's Gospel. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea, so, the great, so great the boat was being swamped by waves. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you have little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a dead calm they were amazed saying what sort of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him what sort of a man is this well this man has divine power it echoes that understanding of Genesis that only God can control um, these massive elemental forces and Jesus can do the same. Jesus can walk on water as well. So that's the thought world that's there. And then when it gets Christianized, we start to see that thought world appearing in maps. And they're called TO maps. And we can see an example of a TO map here. And if you look at the map of Mundi, for example, in Hereford, that's a variant on a TO map. And essentially, it represents... Uh, what we see above so Jerusalem the place of, Je- of Jesus's resurrection that's the center of the world so that's centralized in there there were three known land masses for the uh, ancients in the Middle East Asia Europe and Africa and they are represented uh, in the in the TO map separated by the River Don the River Nile and the Mediterranean. So it's all very much the thought world of uh, the, the Middle East. But you'll notice right round the edge is this ocean. This, the waters that are left are over from chaos. So the Don, the Nile, the Mediterranean, they're the seas, the rivers that God has created. The ocean round the edge is the, basically the leftovers from creation. It's what's, what remains and also tradition had it that the three great land masses were populated out of the children of Noah Shem, Japheth and Ham so that's why they're mentioned uh, there as well so that's a theological thought world that, that develops as a consequence of that cosmology above that's how it all starts to knit together now of course it's not factually correct but this is how it was perceived in the time now there are various things to say about it one one I just want to add is why did this sort of thinking develop well I think a key to it is to understand the distinction between the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic so if you're living in that part of the world you'll be familiar with the Mediterranean which compared with the Atlantic is relatively tideless, relatively calm. The Atlantic is wild and tidal and you do not know what lies beyond it. It's perceived, Spain is perceived to be the end of the world and places like Britain are perceived to be on the edge of the world. So that's the sort of thought world that's going on. So um, if you know your geography then when you look at the bottom there Mediterranean those would be the pillars of Hercules uh, by Gibraltar that's that's for them was the end of the world and if you uh, read um, the book of Noah um, Noah goes to the end of the world and it's thought that he was actually going to a port in in what is now Spain that was again the thinking behind it all now that's the ancient thought well over 2,000 years it's all changed and I want to explain Uh, how the thinking has changed. The first major factor to affect um, the thinking about the sea was quite obviously the sea travel. See, Christianity spread around the Mediterranean and uh, and it required people to travel by sea. And quite naturally, they started to relate the sea um, to, uh, to, to the faith. So St Paul, for example, travels extensively by boat and a lot of the language St Paul uses actually picks up maritime uh, maritime images, although that's often lost in translation today. But a lot of St Paul's thinking was around that. St Paul was a tent maker, may well have been a sail maker as well. So he's probably uh, deeply uh, influenced by by, uh, issues to do with the sea. Some of the great early theologians also picked up imagery of the sea and started to weave it into their theology. Probably the two most significant ones are St. Augustine, who was, a lot of what he wrote about, started to use sea imagery in a positive way to express his Christian views. And the other one was St. John Chrysostom. I'm just gonna give one example of something St. John Chrysostom uh, wrote in one of his sermons. And he, he wrote this, he said, we wonder at the greatness of the sea and its measureless expanse, but terror and fear only seize upon us when we gaze down into its depths. So too here the psalmist. When he gazes down into the immeasurable, yawning depth of divine wisdom, dizziness comes upon him, and he recoils with terrified wonder. Okay, so we're starting to see the sea emerge in uh, Christian literature outside the Bible. Spreading, when Christianity spread around the Mediterranean, something else that happened was that what was essentially a Jewish sect started to interact with classical uh, philosophy. So it started particularly in Greece. So St. Paul and others go to, to uh, the Greek islands and they start to interact with thinkers from, who are steeped in uh, Greek philosophy. And in particular, one of the things that comes out of this is Neoplatonism. So, Christianity, I, if you had to say, if you asked me what Christianity is sort of philosophically, I would say it's a sort of hybrid between, um, between Judaism and Neoplatonism. I think that's how it sort of developed in the, in the, in the early uh, part of Christian history. Neoplatonists were much more positive about the sea and they started to use images about. Uh, the sea, as representing the divine and rivers representing the flow of humanity to the divine. And so we start to see in early Platonic thinking, or neo-Platonic thinking, the idea that we mingle with God, there's a sort of mystical union with God. And that, in a lot of the early Christian mysticism, Uh, appears as well so the idea that that we're like water running to the sea and when and when we reach the sea we we mingle with it and the waters come together and and God becomes we we interact with God in a very powerful uh, way so that's another thing that starts to develop uh, in that period and then Christianity spreads beyond the Mediterranean and for me one of the really interesting things is when it spreads to the British Isles because one of the things that happens then is that people genuinely believed that they were taking Christianity to the end of the world. They didn't know anything beyond it. They really did think that. And in some, uh, some thinking, believe, some people believed that because they'd taken Christianity to the ends of the world, the end of the world was about to happen. The second coming of Christ would come. So... There's, a, there's an idea that now that the gospel has, has been spread as far as it could possibly go, Christ will return. And that affected a lot of thinking. And also what affected a lot of thinking was the idea of, um, of monasticism. So monasticism starts out in the Mediterranean, in the desert, in sandy deserts, and then it starts to spread around, outside the Mediterranean, to where there's not a lot of sun and sand, but what there is, is a lot of water and islands. And so what we start to see is that affecting uh, the religious mindset as well. And some of the early Celtic um, missionaries and saints refer to finding uh, a desert in the ocean, a desert in the ocean. What they're thinking is they can get away Uh, from the rest of humanity and they can find a place on the edge of the world where they are fulfilling God's mission about bringing about the second coming of Christ and they can do it in a location where they are being spiritually tested because they're as far away from God as possible. They're on the edge of chaos and that's a really, very powerful uh, force in early monasticism and in early um, Christianity uh, in the British Isles. One place that is worth going to, some of you may have been there, is Skellig Michael in the, on the west coast of, of Ireland. It's like a mountain peak sticking out of the Atlantic. And for six centuries monks lived there. It's probably gotten more famous recently because it's been used as a set for Star Wars, so you can see Luke Skywalker uh, coming out of a monk's cell. But for six centuries, um, monks lived there in this dramatic, remote location. And it really, for me, sums up that sort of ancient thought world that they've come to the end of the earth, uh, and it's a place of spiritual testing, um, and you can imagine them thinking about the, the end times when they're there. But a more recent pilgrim to this place, the poet David Scott, I'm just going to quote the end of a poem he wrote about Skellig Michael because it really is an extraordinary, powerful place and David Scott wrote, stop, breathe, let in the peace, and if you don't kneel there, where on earth will you kneel? So it is a really powerful spiritual place. I need, to, because of time, I need to make a bit of a leap to, uh, uh, from, from that spread of Christianity uh, around the British Isles until it spread much further afield in the age of discovery. And the person I want to just talk about briefly is someone we all have known and studied at school, Christopher Columbus. One of the things that fascinated me about writing this book was to discover more about Christopher Columbus's religious thought world. It's a very simplistic idea of Columbus is here's someone who's out to discover places, is out to get wealth, and so he sails uh, west. What Columbus was almost certainly doing, and he writes about it in an extraordinary book that he co-authored with a Carthusian monk, and the the book is called Book of Prophecies, explains the religious thinking that uh, that Columbus had. Columbus wasn't setting out to discover new territory. Columbus was trying to find a route to Asia by sailing west rather than travelling east. The reason why he was doing this was because he didn't want to pass through Islamic territory. This was quite soon after uh, Islam had conquered um, Constantinople and became Istanbul and tensions were high between Christians and Muslims at this time. What Columbus wanted to do was find a route to Asia He'd read the works of Marco Polo, who described great wealth in Asia. So he wanted to find a way of getting there and he had an inkling that if you went west you would get there. And he knew that the the earth was was spherical and so he knew that if you travelled far enough you would get there eventually, somehow. Not quite sure how, but he he had a hunch that you could sail there by sea. So that's what he, he was out to do and the reason why he wanted to get to this wealth wasn't for personal gain. What he wanted to do was fund a crusade, fund what he perceived would be the final crusade, when he would be able to fund uh, an assault on Jerusalem, which was in Islamic control, and bring it under Christian control. And he too thought he was living in the end times, and he thought that if he achieved this, he would bring about the second coming of Christ. Now. It all sounds rather extraordinary, but this is, this is his thought world, and this is what he writes about in the Book of Prophecies. And you can see exactly where he's coming from when you, when you read that book. And it's almost certain that Columbus died thinking that he had uh, reached Asia. Um, he'd reached Cuba, he thought he'd reached Asia, and he, was, he, he died convinced of that. He also, one of the preconditions about uh, that about bringing about the Second Coming in the thought world that he inhabited was rediscovering the Garden of Eden. It was perceived to be a, a precursor of the Second Coming of Christ. So he thought one of the Caribbean islands that he'd landed on was the Garden of Eden. It wasn't, but there we are. He thought it was. But that sort of strange thought world was, was very uh, prominent. But what it started to do, of course, is that no longer was the Atlantic seen as this sort of rim of chaos around the, the edge of the, of the world. Suddenly, it becomes this amazing uh, trade route and, and op- source of opportunity for travel and, and mission to take the gospel much further afield. So one of the, the key things of this period is the development of this expansion uh, further afield one of the people who was deeply struck by all this was someone very closely associated with with this place John Dunn the former Dean of St Paul's and um, I'm just going to quote very briefly a poem that Dunn wrote shortly before his death and this he says this whilst my physicians by their love are grown Cosmographers, and I their map, who lie flat on this bed, that by them may be shown that this is my southwest discovery, per fret and febris, by these straits to die." So what he's describing is the doctors studying his body while he's laid out in bed, um, like cosmographers. They're sort of... uh, they're studying his body, trying to work out what's going on while he's lying on his bed. And he refers to this my southwest discovery, and what he's referring to is the discovery of the Magellan Strait, which uh, links the um, links the the Atlantic with the Pacific, and that southwest discovery takes us through to the east, and so what he's almost certainly alluding to is that he's moving from the west, and we associate the western skies with the sun setting and with death, to the east, to the Pacific, which gets associated with sun rising and resurrection. So Dunn is totally steeped in this sort of, and you can read it in all sorts of his poems and sermons, references to to this. Dunn also was a colonialist, and I refer to some of the less pleasant things he writes about about colonialism in, in the book. So, we're starting to see attitudes to the sea changing as a result of the Age of Discovery. Two more influences um, to mention, rather briefly. One is the Enlightenment, so we're moving in, in time a couple of hundred years later. The world, we're, our understanding of the world is changing dramatically and including scientifically. Interestingly, people didn't understand the water cycle properly until the 18th century. Lots of theories about how water circulated but it wasn't until um, the 18th century, late 17th, early 18th century that it really was properly understood. And it was first correctly described, as far as we're aware, by a Cambridge mathematician uh, John Kyle. And he correctly described what was going on and this was also a time where many scientists were also interested in theology. So um, people like Robert Hooke, Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, all these people, they saw their science in rather theological terms. And this is what happened with the water cycle. So it starts to get theologized. So the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, had been the remnant of chaos. By now, not only has it become a route through to to discover the rest of the world, it also becomes the source of fresh water because they understand now that water comes condenses, comes over in clouds and drops down as fresh water and this is through the cyclical thing. So suddenly this chaotic mass that's around the earth suddenly takes on life-giving properties in a a new way. I'm just gonna quote one person who writes about that, John Wesley. So this is John Wesley describing the water cycle. And he says, Who has instructed the rivers to run in so many winding streams through vast tracts of land in order to water them so plentifully, then to disembogue themselves into the ocean, so making it the common centre for commerce, and thence to return through the earth and air to their fountain heads in one perpetual circulation? Well, it's a rhetorical question, because he's saying, this is God doing this. And in the thought world of the time, it's it's God's providence. He sees all this natural cycle for our benefit, that God has created this cycle, um, and it provides a way of transport, it provides us with fresh water, and so on and so forth. So that again starts to change the thinking. Uh, that's going That's going on. One final one to mention, um, and then I'll cut, start to come towards the end, is Romanticism. So, science affects it, but the arts also affects thinking as well. The Romantic movement springs up um, in the 18th century. It's not called the, Atl- uh, the Romantic movement at that time, but that's how we look back at it. And key to all this is the development of the idea of the sublime. People like Burke start to talk about the natural world in very positive ways, where previously people would talk about the natural world in very negative ways. So things like mountains, oceans, things that have terrified people, they start to see a a form of beauty in this because they seem to stir up within a sense of awe and wonder. And so we start to see positive reflections of this in uh, Romanticism. Just to give two brief examples of the effect of Romanticism. One is in poetry. Just about every major Romantic poet writes about the sea. Um, most famously perhaps Samuel Taylor Coleridge, The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner which is deeply theological. We, we might touch on that in Q&A. Also in art so artists like Turner um, pick up strongly on the sea and I picked up on one of the romantic uh, painters for the cover of the book so on the on the other side you'll see uh, this image here it's called Monk by the Sea by a German artist Kasper, uh David Friedrich and it's really sums up a lot of what I was writing about here's, here's this monk standing on the, Uh, a cliff looking out to sea and there's something deeply mystical about that image it's very much one of the key um, German pictures of the romantic uh, movement so romanticism starts to affect people's thinking they get attracted to these wild places they want to go by the sea they want to go up mountains and so on and so forth But romanticism's impact spreads also to Christianity and in particular to hymn writing. And if you go through the English hymnal and look at hymns that refer to the sea, you will find a vast number of them, and many of them, written um, in the late 18th, 19th century, the period of Romanticism. And romantic poetry is, is getting into the psyche of uh, hymn writers. And there are loads of them I'm just going to quote one very briefly um, by Church of Scotland hymn writer George Matheson Church of Scotland minister O love that wilt not let me go I rest my weary soul in thee I give to thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths it flows may richer fully be that idea of flowing back uh, to the ocean Neoplatonic, I mentioned it earlier on. Interestingly, Matheson had studied classics. Um, He'd studied Plato at uh, at the University of Glasgow, and we start to see that sort of Neoplatonic image, and a lot of the Romantics were influenced by Neoplatonism as well. Five more minutes, then I will uh, stop, but I just wanted to, to bring things together, because We've covered a lot of territory um, and we've gone chronologically. One of the things that that I really looked at in depth was accounts of people's religious experience. I was really interested in, do people honestly have religious experiences associated with the sea? There are two key sources for looking at this. One is a book by Um, William James, who was the brother of Henry James, the writer. William James was a uh, psychologist and he wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And looked in that, a number of the accounts of religious experience he uh, writes about in the late 19th, early 20th century are to do with the sea. The other source that I looked at, and in much more depth, was the database of the Religious Experience Centre which initially was in Oxford University and then later got transferred over uh, to Lampeter. That was set up by Alastair Hardy who was Professor of Zoology and a marine biologist at Oxford, a very distinguished marine biologist who actually incidentally taught um, biology to Richard Dawkins, Um, so interesting side. Um, But when he retired, he turned his attention to religious experience because when he was a teenager, Hardy had a religious experience next to water. And he, he promised himself that at some point in his life he would put his academic mind around religious experience. So he did it when he retired as the professor of zoology at Oxford. And he sent out a national appeal for um, for people to fill in a form anonymously about religious experiences that they had. And 6,000 or so people responded to this. This was in the late uh, 1960s, early 70s. Uh, and then he analysed them. Well, I went through them as well, uh, subsequently, to look about, to see if I could find anything to do with the sea. And I did, I found a lot. And they fell into two very clear categories and there was hardly anything other than these. One was um, feeling safe in the, f- in the face of extreme danger at sea. So here's an example. I feel increasingly a sense of being guided and protected by a power beyond myself. This is applied to major events, as in the, the sea off Don- Dunkirk in 1940, in 1940. When I felt detached from events and assured that I was safe, so quite often sailors who were in in difficult situations who suddenly found peace and a sense of God's presence with them. But by far the most were what's termed the oceanic feeling, a sense of connectedness with the divine. So I'm just going to read this one out uh, to you, and this is off the west coast of Wales. I was walking alone towards the sunset along the very fine cliffs and finally stopped and sat looking out to sea to watch the last moments of the sun's descent. I remember that the sky was immensely profoundly blue and continued perfectly clear as the sun's light waned, and I distinctly recall this gave me a powerful sense of infinity, a reminder of huge tracts of space and galaxies many light years away. I also remember noticing the golden path of the sun on the Karmish Sea, and the many signs around of the interaction of rock and water, the worn hollows and spines of one and the ceaseless movement of the other. It was from this observation that my mind began to move in the direction of religious thought, but that is perhaps a misleading way of expressing the fact. The strongest memory I have is of a conviction pressing in on my whole being, not merely my mind, That the creation in front of me, its elemental forces, its huge complexity, was not complete or self-sufficient, but that behind it, within it, was the creator or ultimate reality. So that's sort of experience that people have. So to bring everything together, in a very brief way, um, from quite a complex set of arguments, is that what I argue in the book is that through history, the sea has been highly sacramental. What I mean by that is not a sacrament like communion, but uh, a pointer to a representation of God for many people. In a, something that's much stronger than metaphor, so it's metaphor, but actually goes beyond metaphor, so deeper. For me, the person who best expressed it was Hilaire Belloc, the writer, who actually was also a very fine sailor. And he wrote a book about sailing around Britain called The Cruise of the Nona. And in it, he referred to the sea as the common sacrament of the world. So I'm actually just going to end with a passage that I wrote in The Sacramental Sea, which really sums up uh, what the argument is. Then I'll finish. So I write... Over the centuries, a number of influential thinkers and writers have emphasised the sacramental dimension of creation, its ability, in the words of Michael Mayne, to mirror the divine. It was Belloc, however, who appreciated more than most the breadth and depth of the sea's sacramental nature. He understood that it could create vivid images to fire the imagination, as well as clear the minds to contemplate ultimate mysteries that at one moment the sea can seem a boundless source of life, at another a vast barren wilderness. He understood too that the sea's capricious nature captures precisely the human condition with its varying moods and the questions these can throw up about the meaning of life and the nature of God. Such questioning highlights a distinctive aspect of the sea's sacramental nature, the problem of theodicy. On the one hand, the sea is vital to our existence. Its place in the hydrologic cycle ensures we are supplied with life-giving water. It is an abundant source of food and increasingly a source of energy. It is something that gives pleasure and is life-enhancing. And yet, at the same time, it is dangerous and deadly. Its capricious nature speaks of God as the giver and taker of life who also permits suffering. There is nothing sentimental about the sea, its dangers are too well known. Thank you very much.